Hello, I'm Anna Goldsworthy, and welcome to Perfect Cadence, the podcast in which writers speak about music and in which musicians speak about literature. I'd like to start by acknowledging the traditional custodians of the lands upon which we gather, the Ghana people, and acknowledging their deep connection to country. I'd like to pay my respect to their elders, past, present and emerging, and I'd like also to extend that respect to other Aboriginal language groups and other First Nations. Today, it's my great pleasure to welcome multi-instrumentalist, composer, looping performer and veritable master of endurance, Adam Page. Adam composes and performs for organisations ranging from the Adelaide Symphony Orchestra, the New Zealand Symphony Orchestra, to his own 12-piece ensemble, the Adam Page Ensemble. Adam, welcome to the show. It is so wonderful to be here. Perfect Cadence is brought to you by the J.M. Coetzee Centre of Creative Practice at the University of Adelaide, a place where inspiration, ideas and invention come together and a cultural hub where leading literary, musical and multimedia scholars and artists can learn from one another and collaborate. We're going to be talking today about a lot of things, but refracted through a particular artwork, which is itself about an artwork. And this is Heather Rose's 2016 novel, The Museum of Modern Love, which won the Stella Prize in 2017, that annual literary award for writing by Australian women in all genres. It was Adam who brought this book to my attention, and I was wondering, Adam, whether you could tell us a little bit about it to get started. Sure. Well, uh, it's it's called the Museum of Modern Love, obviously, and uh, I think that's well, it is a bit of a play on words of the Museum of Modern Art, where a uh, a performance uh, of the artist is present in in twenty ten, I believe it was um, was put on by the Serbian um, performance artist Marina Abramovic. Abramovic, sorry, um, and. This book is kind of like a, uh, a fiction, non-fiction account of, of that performance. Um, and it, it's, it's a book like none other that I've, that I've read. And I, I just really loved that there was this, this connection with reality in a, in a book that was largely fiction. So the central character is a, a, a film composer um, called Aki, and uh, he's quite unhappy, depressed, unmotivated. His, um, his wife is gravely ill and uh, basically is put into palliative care, but she's put out a, uh, a, a court order to basically stop him from visiting her. With him trying to decipher what this means, he just sort of started walking the streets, I guess, and stumbled upon this performance of The Artist is Present, which is basically... Abramovich sitting on a chair with you know this beautiful flowing red dress and another person sits opposite her and she opens her eyes and they gaze into each other's eyes for as long as it takes and then that person leaves, she closes her eyes, another person comes and they just look at each other. And she does that for eight hours a day, six days a week for nearly three months. The story is, is sort of centred around that but also around the audience members and the relationships that those audience members have with each other as they meet 
watching people watch each other. <laughs> and I just found it such a fascinating story and a fascinating look on on performance because, you know, as a performer myself, I, I'm always wondering what, what the audience is feeling and what the audience is thinking. And this book just takes you right there. It takes you to, to the heart and soul of, of people that are, that are consuming art and consuming this performance. And um, I just found it very moving and, and quite, um, quite inspiring, actually. Yeah, it's a, it is a fascinating book, isn't it? I mean, among other things, it's a really generous tribute from one artist to another. I found out an interesting fact about this book um, just yesterday, uh, and Heather Rose had been had been working on this book for a number of years, and it was the sort of the character was based on Abramovich, but then she sat uh, with her um, four times, and it was on the third time where she realised actually. I can't have a fictional character. She needs to be in my book. Right. And she had this, yeah. this epiphany while she was gazing into her eyes and then, uh, yeah, contacted her and said, would you mind being the subject of my book and uh, this fictional account? And she agreed and, and just fell in love with, with the story. So uh, I, I, th- I thought that was quite beautiful, actually, um, that it, it evolved through, through this connection. That's fascinating that she was seeking to create a fictional figure based on Abramovich. I, I didn't know that, and I'm not quite sure how you'd go about doing that because she's such a singular figure. Absolutely. And, and you, people that knew her work would be just like, hey, this is obviously about her, so why didn't you just use her? <laughs> but, yeah, so, yeah, I think it's, 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 a, nice, it's a nice little sort of, uh, sort of Easter egg that I found, you know, um, just from delving deep into the story. But I guess uh, some of her other... Other works of art, I guess. Um, she she cut a five pointed star into her stomach with a razor blade, uh, screaming until she lost consciousness. The one that well, there's two that I really really kind of admired, and one of them was she was she lived at a gallery for twelve days uh, without any food, and they built this these rooms that you could see into, and there was ladders, but the the uh, basically the the uh, rungs were butcher's knives, so she couldn't actually get down, otherwise she'd cut her feet. And so she was just up there for twelve days, starving herself, basically. And I mean that is absolutely extreme, mm. but that endurance sort of uh, element it, it, it's very enticing for me. And then her her partner of of many years, Ule, who was another performance artist, he. Well, they, they originally planned on walking the Great Wall of China, one from one end, the other from the other, meeting in the middle and getting married. And so they'd organise this thing, but then it was like years and years of trying to wade through the bureaucracy and, you know, the Chinese government saying yes, and then no, yes, no, yes, no. And it got to a point where they, they hated the idea so much and they sort of started moving apart from each other. So when they still did the the walk so it was you know 2000 kilometers each or something when they met in the middle they broke up and didn't see each other for 22 years <laughs> and then as i understand it ule actually turned up at the installation at, on the opening on the opening day i guess on the yeah. opening day and then she she broke because she was sitting there incredibly still and was only about eye contact but i think she broke the convention for that and reached over yeah. and grabbed his hands there's footage of of that moment as well and it whenever i see it i i 
cry. Yeah. It's beautiful. Mm. It is absolutely beautiful. And the moment, actually, the thing that I love about that moment is that obviously she's just taken aback because she hasn't seen, you know, her lover for 22 years. Mm. And, and just that moment of recognition and then that moment of just like, what am I going to do? You know, and both of them are just sort of, sh- you know, shaking their heads like, mm. what, what's happening here? And, mm. and they, they have that, you know, the, the hands, you know, touched. And then he leaves. And the next person sits down. But there's this, these, I think she closes her eyes three times. You know, closes, opens, they weren't ready. She wasn't ready. Closes them, opens them again, wasn't ready. But then closes them. And then when she opens them for the last time, she's a different person. Mm. You know, and that, that level of concentration and focus was it's it's just it's, it's it's just striking it's interesting isn't it i mean a lot of her projects seem to be about really pushing herself to the edge and by doing so i suppose examining what it is to be a human examining the notion of pain and deprivation there's always that there's also that very striking thing that she did in serbia where she laid out all these items on a table and invited the public to various items ranging from a feather boa to a gun mm. and invited the public to do whatever they would do with her body mm. and Predictably, it brought out some people's worst natures. Yeah, and I think she was quite she was quite troubled and quite disturbed by that. But mm. then, I read an interview with her in which she said that she'd come to the understanding that you could bring out the worst in people and the best, mm. and that the whole idea at MoMA was to give out unconditional love. So it was not to challenge bad energy, but um, she now thinks that if you give somebody a chainsaw, you're provoking them. But but to do mm. the opposite, and it does seem that this particular project was very very moving. And a lot of people were in tears yeah. and it inspired, I mean, many things, obviously, including this this book that we're going to talk about. But not just that, Adam. I think, um, I believe it was the inspiration of a, of a recent project that you did. Absolutely. So I was basically, I, I knew about Abramovich's work um, before reading it, but then I was I was hooked from reading reading this book. And um, I remember the moment when I finished, finished the book and, and it was a very satisfying ending and um i remember my uh, i was i was in our spare room because our baby was you know crying and you know but yeah it was it was yeah it was it was just a moment where i i I had a night where i could you know not have to you know tend to the baby and um i thought look i'm just gonna finish this book and i sat there just thinking to myself how how can i respond to this artistically because i can't let this one go you know, often when I read a book, it's just, you know, you finish the book and, yeah, there's elements that stay with you, mm. um, but then I'm on to my next book. Mm. And But this one was just, it, it was just this sort of, it grabbed me. It grabbed me. I, it put hooks in my back yeah. and just went, okay, you need to do something to, to your own art in order to respond to the way that this, this is inspiring, you know. So, and I, I always say that to, to students. It's like if, if you like something then don't let it go. Mm. Pursue that thing, whatever it is. If you hear a song, find out what it is. Find out who's playing that particular instrument, who's, you know, who recorded it. Find out everything you can about that piece of music because it, it will then just become a part of you and your life and your, your, artistic, um, uh, your, your artistic journey. And so I, I, I sat with this feeling and I thought, look, I don't know what it's going to be, but it's going to be something great. A couple of months later, I, I got a call from Anne Weiberg, who, was the, who is the um, artistic director at a um, great venue here in Adelaide called The Lab, and they hadn't opened yet. And she was just sort of figuring out what kind of acts they could put on, and she really wanted me involved and she wanted me to do something different. 
And she said, look, anything. We'll do anything. And out of nowhere, I just went, I want to do a 24-hour show. Yeah, wow. And it, well, it wasn't out of nowhere. It was something that kind of got implanted in my brain a, a number of days after finishing the book. But given the opportunity, it was like, yes, that's what I want to do. And she's like, I love it, love it, love the idea. And then once I committed to it, it was like, right, I, I, need, to, I need to prepare myself. And, I, and this, is, this is a physical endurance event more than mental creative. Well, it was a mentally, you know, <laughs> it, was pretty, it was pretty hard. It was pretty hard. But, um, but there was physical elements that I needed to kind of work on. And um, I really took inspiration from, well, from that book and from Abramovich as well, just knowing that, you know, there's people out there that can do these things mm. and I'm one of those people. Mm. Well, you, you clearly are. Um, I mean, it's, it's also sort of rather lovely that Rose was inspired by Abramovich and then Paige was inspired by Rose. Mm. This notion of a piece of art keeping on, on giving and sort of multiple iterations, it's, it's wonderful when you see that happen. Mm. What did you kind of learn artistically? I mean, did you find yourself prompted into different sort of regions of your creative imagination by the challenge of this 24-hour show? Well... I didn't think about it until I sat down. I decided that I wasn't, I wasn't going to prepare much musically. Mm. I, I, I prepared my meals, so I saw a nutritionist and you know figured out an eating plan, all that mm. sort of stuff to get me through the day. But and and I'd created this twenty-four note melody as well, and that was it. And that was basically it. Took the amount of time to play it as as it took to write it. So it was an improvised kind of melody that I then. Um, sort of used throughout the the 24 hours just grabbed little bits from and but it was largely you know 99.9 percent improvised and so I didn't I didn't think about it at all until I sat down or until I just got on stage mm. and started so and I'm so glad I did it that way I think if I started thinking about results mm. I, I probably would have crashed halfway through it sounds like a kind of ideal preparation process for any artistic endeavour in which the best you can really do is just set up the physical conditions mm. and then just sit down and let the thing happen. Yeah. But, you know, as, as, a, as a reader myself, as a classical musician, mm. as opposed to an improviser, I've always been really interested in, in what you do and, and how you do it. And I actually thought there's a kind of interesting sort of map laid out in the book, which is what Abramovich described as her, um, I guess, process. Mm. It's a word that gets a little bit overused, but her artistic process, how she, what she believes the steps are of a, of a work of art or making art. And um, Heather Rose actually structures the Museum of Modern Love on these seven steps. And I thought it might be interesting to talk about 
talk through them. Absolutely. So she says there's awareness, there's resistance, there's submission, there's work, reflection, courage, and the gift. And and in the book where each of these sort of denotes a section of the book, um, each section is also prefigured by an epigraph. So I thought, you know, it might be interesting to start with. I'd be just really interested to get Mm. into your head, Adam, and Mm. work out what you do if you've got all the physical conditions in place and you've got your 24-note melody and then you've just got to improvise, Mm. or even not even just when you're improvising but when you're composing, Mm. how these, and indeed if these various sort of processes roll out for your own creation. So the the first one is awareness, and the epigraph here is one by Stella Adler. Life beats down and crushes the soul... And art reminds you that you have one. Mm, I love that. <laughs> I love that so much. Um, so a lot of the book is actually about the purpose of art, isn't it, really? It's a lot of philosophical musings about what is art. Absolutely. What is an artist? Who absolutely. is an artist? And um, look, that that rings true to like pretty much most aspects of my life. You know, like art is, you know, it's it's a great healer, not just not just music. I, I love, I mean, I love reading. Obviously, that's why we're here. Um, the art gallery is a place that I go to regularly just to be. Um, so that that kind of idea of like awareness, um, that that I think that first that first stage for me is the most important because that's my dreaming stage and that's the stage where if if i um if i if, if i get asked to do a commission um a composition commission or if, if there's some kind of idea that that sort of pricks up in my mind if i can't if i can't see it and hear it immediately then i don't do it and it's and i don't he- see in here the final product i just see this it, it's it's like a um, it's like a dream stage mm-hmm. where um, as people are talking to me about it, it just I sort of go I disappear a little bit mm. and try and imagine some things, and then I just let the mind go. Mm. And sometimes it stops, um, and other times it just lets go. And that and then I see I see the end product. It's nothing like it's going to be, but I see it. I see what it could be. So you do have a type of roadmap. Well, it's not even a roadmap. It's yeah, like it's, a it's a weird thing. It's a destination. It, yeah. I, I mean, I I know for myself if I'm writing something, sometimes it's almost like I can smell it. Yeah. So it's like I can sort of sense it. It's here, mm. but and, it's and not as concrete as but a result. It's more like a smell. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and uh, but do you get the the opposite of it when there's something that you don't feel is is going to work? Do you, is there nothing there, or is there is there a different kind of smell? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I guess I don't. I don't know if you find this, but there are some projects that seem to call you to do them, mm. and then there are others that maybe you've been commissioned to do, or someone's asked you to do, or someone said, "How about we collaborate?" and you just can't quite see it. Yeah, but you can still. I mean, sometimes you can artificially inseminate, make mm. these things come to fruition. Yeah, it's just not the beautiful sort of natural birth. Somehow. Exactly, exactly. So, so that idea of awareness, I think, it, it's it's more just about uh, like opening up. Okay, so that's what awareness is, I guess. But it's about opening up to the art and seeing if it if it sticks. Yeah. Um, and I I've, I feel like that's a that's that's such an important part, especially when when I'm wor- you know working with younger composers as well. They don't spend enough time there in mm. that moment mm. of like don't write a note, mm. go for a walk, mm. 
sit on sit on a hill somewhere. Well, we don't really live in a society that engenders that type of reflect reflective no. time, which I think is toxic to it. Really is. Art. And and uh, but then it leads on to the next one, which is resistance. And mm. I I think that that's not a negative thing. I think resistance is just actually the logistics of the, of making this thing work. Of you know, so once you've got this idea, it's like okay, so how long do we have? <laughs> yeah. So that's that's the resistance is like just the real life stuff. Making it real. Yeah, Making before real. we we head on to submission, and that's where it, it's I guess submission is more like absolute trust. You know, like you are you're you're just you're a part of this thing now. It's a part of you. You know, you're submitting. You like each of the the, the art and the artist are one. Okay. That's that's how I kind of think of that submission. You're submitting yourself to this process and. That leads perfectly into obviously work. Um, yeah. But um, those three elements, for me, are probably eighty percent of the composition mm. <laughs> before I've even started work. So that's sort of at odds with the kind of you know the truism or cliche, depending on how you look at it. That you know it's ninety nine percent perspiration and one percent inspiration. You're saying actually give yourself time to be inspired before you sit down and do the hard yakka. Uh, that that's. At this point in my life, yes. Yeah. I used to have the mantra um, of, it's a quote from Picasso, which was, um, inspiration exists, it just has to find you working. Mm. Which I, I agree with that as well. Um, well, actually, there's another, there's, another, there's another quote from Picasso right mm. here in the book, just under submission in part mm. three, in which uh, he says, only put off until tomorrow what you were willing to die having left undone. Mm. Just means we're not getting a lot of sleep, any of us. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. But I, you know, I, I've I've done a lot of work on defining what work is as well. And so for me, acknowledging that these the early stages, like the gestation period of an mm. idea, you need to give that space. You need, you, you know, it's like when you plant a garden. If you've got good soil, mm. then you know you've got to wait for, you know, we've got to wait for the seed to to grow into your tomato bush or whatever it's going to be, and um, sure, you can you can just dive in and start. Yeah. But if I have the time, and I, and I always give myself time as well. That's um, wise. Yeah, I always give myself time to to let this happen. I've got three projects that are that haven't started yet in a physical form, mm. but they I've planted them in my head, mm. and I can kind of switch between the three of them at the moment, and and just just let them sit there. Yeah. Let them sit. The art of patience. I mean, in many ways, the kind of COVID-induced sabbatical was an education of patience, Absolutely. I think, for a lot of us who mm. weren't out touring or playing and doing our things anymore. And I don't know if you found this, but at, with at least a couple of projects, that forced period of dormancy actually, I think, helped me. Mm. Um, so I wasn't... Two projects were sort of postponed by a year. And then when they finally did come to fruition, I thought... They somehow seemed richer and deeper and better for having had that extra year of not consciously thinking about them. Just Absolutely, but but you there. you were though you were subconsciously yeah. thinking about them. They were yeah. they were sitting there and you you were giving them time and yeah. And it just made me think. I'm sure there's a lesson to be a lesson to be extrapolated here, and obviously one that you already know, which is about giving yourself proper time mm. and not just whipping yourself to produce, produce, produce. Yeah, yeah, a and and. You know, sometimes you can't do that. Mm. But even, you know, for me, work is going for a walk. You know, if I decide to take a day off of, you know, if, I, if I've got this writing schedule 
Um, the day off isn't a day off. A day off is a day away from from this particular thing that I'm doing in a physical fashion. You know, it's it, it's still in me. The music's still there, and mm. and if I need a day off, it's it's there's a reason for that. Um, but it's 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 also about kind of like like worshiping the moment as well, which is something that she really you know, Abram- Abramovich really kind of. Um, is that is at the center of her of her performances it's about that moment um that you're there doing the thing it can take as long as it needs i wonder i wonder if you have a different relationship with the moment of identifying an improviser Mm, absolutely i i think so i think um any improviser has a different idea of of time not not rhythm but just time Mm. because like when we're, we're not reading the music, we we are we're literally just s- sort of in a different space. I think um, a different plane, <laughs> if you will, uh, where where time can it, it, it's it's like we're time traveling. I guess. I mean, I get you get that with I'm sure with your you know your works on on piano. Like when you when you play a you know a concerto, it's time stretches, right? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely, but but you yeah. but you you've got there's a timeline. Well, there, well, there is. I mean, that's one of the interesting things about playing a concerto, particularly because you get on the train, yeah. the orchestra pulls out of the station, and no one's getting off that train until the orchestra gets to the end. It's quite alarming when yeah. you're sitting there. It's <laughs> yeah. the opening tutti. You're on the train. There's nowhere you can go. Yeah. Um, and yet, within that, paradoxically, you can find this extraordinary freedom. I suppose what you often have, you have a pretty clear structure a pretty clear arc but I'm assuming you have that too in your improvisations or some sort of template uh, or scaffolding mm, the only scaffolding would be um, like the very like very basic like fundamental parts of music so like the tonality mm. what time signature might be the tempo and then the rest is if, if I'm improvising with myself um, it, it's the conversation with myself um, mm. Or it's a conversation with other people, so it's it's just like this. Like what we're doing right now is an improvisation. Oh, for sure. Completely. I mean, all of our days are improvisations, yeah, and absolutely. that's why you know it can be daunting. But every conversation is an improvisation. Yeah, totally, totally. And um, yeah, and and I just I, I I think that that moment and and worshiping the the this this moment that's happening right now and being completely aware of the moment as well is is what's so. I guess what's so so striking about Abramovich, but also about this book as well, because she's she's constantly going back to the spectators mm. and how they're dealing with this beautiful moment of stillness that's happening on stage. Well, you know, between these two people that are looking at each other, complete mm. strangers, but they're there like for hours on end, doing nothing but being, you know, and they walk out of that place completely changed, but nothing happened. It's fa- it is fascinating. I mean, in a way, why why is it so extraordinary that someone is just sitting there? And, and maybe that's what she did. She kind of restored a sense of the moment of being there in the moment. And, you mm. know, ideally music does that to us too. It brings us back to the moment. Like we live in this mm. age where we're just forever distracted and we're always planning or looking at our screens or ticking off our to-do lists. Yeah. And to say I'm very, very busy is, is sort of like the, the ultimate s- signifier of virtue. Mm. And ver- it's very, very hard these days to properly access this moment and it's one thing mm. you know it's one thing i love about sitting down with the chopin nocturne is i feel it sort of restores me to a sense of being in real time yeah. instead of this kind of amped up contemporary time mm. but it seems that 
that was one of the things that the Abramovich artwork did. It also clearly gave people a real sense of being seen. Mm, absolutely. Yeah. And and that's why when you see when you see the footage of you know the the thousands of faces, so many of them have tears rolling down their eyes, and then and then you see you know Marina crying as well, and not mo- not moving, but just there's just this raw emotion and that connection that people crave. Yeah. Yeah, and I had a look at the um, the MoMA website where they they had a um, a little snippet of of her talking about the art before before it you know got kicked off, and she said, "What I'm very interested in is legacy. What you want to leave after you die. But one thing you can leave always is a good idea, and I really want this good idea to live after me." So. Mm. It's interesting that somebody who's a performance artist should be so concerned with legacy because in a way you're not producing the artefacts of legacy as you would be if you were a, a writer. Exactly, say. exactly. Because it but is about the moment. Yeah, but but she's but she's sort of distilled it to the idea. You know, the idea mm. is what she wants to live mm. on. And mm. absolutely, like mm. that that idea of, of sitting there for eight hours a day, six days a week for three months. It was almost had a kind of secular, sort of religious quality to it, didn't it? Like it people did. came mm. for some sort of reason like that. The other thing I think I, I read her saying was that it was a real encounter with grief for her. Mm. She she sort of saw the intrinsic sorrow in so many people. Yeah. And I mean, it's sort of fascinating that when you gaze into someone's eyes, or when you feel seen, or or someone, mm. or you see somebody, that tears should be a kind of. Mm. Reaction should be a default reaction, as yeah. if when we kind of recognise each other's essential humanity, that's what we see is is the suffering. And it makes me think of um, a quote that's in the book, actually, in the very first part, part one, awareness. There's a kind of, it's not quite clear what it is, but there's a kind of angelic being who's sort of hovering around all of these people who mm. are lost, maybe a kind of type of muse or some sort of benevolent deity who's keeping an eye on everything. And, and that's a, that is a sort of narrator of a lot of the book and um, one of the quotes of this being is art creates a certain familiarity with loneliness and possibly with pain physical mental it doesn't really matter it's all a catalyst I don't like to admit that because it's depressing but in truth pain is the stone that art sharpens itself on time after time does that ring true to you yes in I mean I've I've lived a pretty privileged life but I've also had uh, you know, I've, I've dealt with some some pretty substantial grief in these in these last sort of couple of years and um, had, I had a very close friend pass away um, six or so years ago and um, and just some other sort of family things that kind of went down a few years later and I, I was yeah I was in a pretty bad place and hadn't quite dealt with with that grief and I sat down for a day and a half on a piano and wrote music, which ended up being a, an album that I released called The Colours of Grief.
and that that process of of writing was you know sharpening the knife on the stone and I felt I felt so much lighter like I hadn't dealt with the grief in in a way that I thought would you you would you would deal, deal with grief if you know what I mean like I didn't see a counselor I didn't really speak about it too much with people um but that process of creating the art around that pain mm. it absolutely I mean the art wouldn't have existed without the pain mm. and it's my, one of the things I'm most proud of um in my my catalogue I guess and so yeah yeah I think I think you can't have one without the other I think art and pain are they they they're one and the same. Well, they certainly <laughs> seem to be in the Abramovich universe. Absolutely. But even, I mean, even the notion of loneliness is, is quite an interesting one. Because when I when I look back, for instance, at the canon of, of great classical composers, so many of them, I think, had a, a deep familiarity with loneliness. And mm. perhaps if they hadn't, they wouldn't have written as they did. I mean, Chopin at one stage said to, the, to his friend, now that you're not here, I have to tell the piano all my secrets. Or Beethoven, as he kind of became increasingly imprisoned in this sort of interiority of his own mind mm. because he became deaf and shut out from normal society, was able to access, the, as we know, the most extraordinary mm. things. I mean, uh, which isn't necessarily to say that one should court pain or, or grief or loneliness in order to create. No, but, I mean, just listen to the blues, you mm. know. Yeah. <laughs> the, the blues came from a, a, a place of... Like absolute pain and mm. absolute suffering, and and still, you know, I, mean, I was thinking about the blues just just tonight, where you know the blues, it, it isn't entirely sad music because the person that's playing the blues mm. is getting something out, you know, like they're expressing themselves. They're they're like they're telling people, I got the blues, you know, yeah. and and that's making them feel better. But it's also making the people who seek it out and listen to it feel better and that's a curious thing isn't it that we mm. like to try on sad feelings through art and somehow either feel redeemed or uplifted by them mm. i mean it's a really curious thing that we should flirt with melancholy in this way but yeah so much art seems to be built on that yeah i, I agree i absolutely agree and um i mean for going back to my 24-hour show as well like there was varying levels of of suffering I was wondering, because I mean, I know when I get on a long distance flight, mm. there's usually one moment on that flight when my spirit just finally breaks mm. and I've just had enough. And I don't know if there was anything like being on, on a long distance flight. Of course, it was much more physically taxing and gruelling. Yeah, I, it was very different <laughs> to a flight because at a flight I could just shut off. Yeah. Whereas I had to be present for 24 hours, like every mm. second, every moment. And I mean, there was some moments where I think... Well, I didn't fall asleep, mm. but I definitely slipped into some kind of semi-conscious state. But but there were some there were some really grueling moments for me. There were there were moments where I truly didn't believe that I could finish this thing. And the first one was at eleven o'clock at night. Wow. I'd only been playing for four hours. And you thought I'm going to have to bail. I'm going to have to bail. Mm -hmm. Yep, yep. How did you get through that? Did you just give yourself permission to feel that for a while? I ate honey. Ah. <laughs> yep, okay. honey. Good to know that. Yep, I, I, and and all it took was the honey to hit my tongue, mm. and I just I, I snapped out of it. Mm. I've I, I spent a lot of time meditating as well, and that really helped. Yeah, I bet it I did. think. Um, and even even though my meditation practice is is kind of you know 
<laughs> all but disappeared of late, just having a young family now, um, it's still with me a lot. And it was absolutely by my side the entire process. Like, mm-hmm. I, it made me comfortable with every second maybe yeah. because I, I knew how to how to not just live in a moment I knew how to 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 sit you know with a moment mm. and going back to Abramovich that's what this is all about it's just like every every second was important and every second was was present um, and being present for someone else and so I through my 24 hours I I had to be present for my audience because there was audience members that were there for the whole time. But most of all, I had to be present like for myself, Mm. you know, and I had to, I had to also let myself go. Occasionally I did let go a little bit. And I remember kind of being in these sort of like writhing physical kind of (laughs) moments where I was just like moving around like, like a madman. And, and there was one moment in the penultimate hour, 23 hours where I was, playing this this figure on the piano and I, I, I was stuck. I couldn't get out of it. It was this really <laughs> How did you like find concussive. your way out? I, I think I scared myself because I was absolutely convinced that I was going to be doing that for the rest of my life. <laughs> my brain just went on some weird sort of flip side and I was just doing this... <laughs> Just, I, th- I think I just stopped. I think I just threw my hands away from the piano. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's interesting because there was a, 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 a film crew that, that documented the, the performance and I was talking to the, the, the director about it and he said, I know exactly what you're talking about because he, he thought he's finally going to break. Oh, right, that at moment. that moment, yeah, he uh-huh. thought this is something big. So he wa- he he walked right up to me and he had like the camera right on my face because like, I'm going to cap, I'm, I'm going to get him. He's he's, he's going to break. He's yeah. going to break. This is it. But I, I don't know. I just I, I scared myself. I think I'm like yeah. no no I can't. And, just, and so there was I don't know. I, I put my I put myself through so much stress yeah. while at the same time having the time of my life. Yeah, yeah. That's and an amazing journey into your very self really that kind of it really was it really was because because it was completely improvised as well and um i i just needed to trust myself and and sit with the the pain because physically it was painful as well Mm. um the last few hours i couldn't stand um so yeah it was it was yeah it was hard but so amazing to do and i and i was thinking of um of abramovich a lot mm. and about the importance of what I'm doing mm. you know I think um that's that's kind of one of the things that that sort of defines me as an artist now I'm the guy that did the 24-hour show mm-hmm. and I used to be the guy that played vegetables and you know <laughs> I much prefer the 24-hour version <laughs> yeah yeah that's great part four work mm. Georgia O'Keefe says the days you work are the best days and there, actually, there's a nice line in this about the process of composing music, um, in which, again, I think the well, the sort of omniscient narrator says, he'd always known music as an electrical circuit running through every pathway in his body, 
When music came to him, the world grew calm and clear and silent. Mm. Does that resonate in any way? Definitely. Definitely. I get really excited as well. Like when the music comes, it's mm. just it's just a great feeling. And it is, it's an electricity. Absolutely. And and it's an electricity of my own making, which is so cool. Mm. Yeah. And um yeah, that's beautiful. That's that's really beautiful. I, I, I'd forgotten about that because I did think about that at the time as well. And and I just thought that the the depiction of this of this composer who was so kind of so involved in his own work, but also largely unhappy mm. <laughs> as well. But then really happy when it's actually flowing. Like it's just like this is this yeah. This is very true to to me as a composer as well like when it's when it's flowing it's beautiful so work we love work and then we come to reflection part five reflection and actually there's a lovely quote here from emerson which is every artist was first an amateur And I think, you know, it's, it's important to remember that. Absolutely. And that's what lies at the heart of anyone who makes stuff. Mm-hmm. Ideally, they're an amateur. They, they loved it. Mm-hmm. They didn't necessarily have the craft. They had the passion. Absolutely. And they were doing gig after gig for peanuts. But then all of a sudden we grow up, don't we? And we need to make money. And the big challenge is to keep that that youthfulness well, I think in so. your art. And maybe the humility of that position too, which is mm. not feeling yourself too much of an expert. Absolutely. Absolutely. And it I think um in many ways like music is 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 the great mirror of that, I think. Um because it is you know, it's it's something it's expression, artistic expression in real time. You know, if you haven't been practicing mm. You hear it. Well, there's this thing. <laughs> I mean, there's this thing we say certainly in classical music, which is you're only as good as your last show, mm. and it just means it's something you have to prove time and time and time again. You can't. That's you right. can't rest in your laurels. You can't say yes, I'm awesome because I once did this. Exactly. Exactly. And so every time, in a way, you approach the stage from the same position of. Mm. Yeah. And and it's it's awesome where you know if if I'm practicing, okay. The thing I love to when I say if I'm practicing, I've got a four year old and a one year old at the moment, so I, <laughs> I have to put the yeah if I'm yeah. practicing. Um, I love playing like long tones on my saxophone. I love playing scales, and in many ways, that's what I did when I was an amateur. Mm. When I started learning this instrument, mm. I was playing the C major scale. The first thing I'll do when I pick up the instrument is play the C major scale. Yeah. It's the same thing, but it, I'm, you know, 30 years older and... Well, there's a hygiene in these processes too, isn't there? It's, mm. I mean, it's not like you have your shower once in life and then you're done, you're clean. <laughs> True. And it's, there's an honesty too, I think, yeah. to going back to that. Oh, totally. Maintaining the craft. And importance as well. Oh, it's absolutely yeah. essential. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> well, in some ways that segues very nicely into our part six, which is courage. Mm. E. Cummings said, it takes courage to grow up and become who you really are. Mm. And then we have part seven, which is the gift. And there's a quote here from André Gide, which is, be faithful to that which exists within yourself. Mm. There's also a nice quote, I think, in this chapter about the nature of being an artist, which you know takes us back, actually, I think, Adam, to what you were talking about when you first 
encounter the, the germ of the idea of, of the piece of music in your mind's ear, I suppose. And again, this is our angel or our sort of omniscient being speaking. What does it take to be an artist? They have to listen. But do they listen? Most people are filled up with a lifetime of noise and distraction that it's hard to get past. <laughs> yeah. That, that makes me think of a, an amazing experience I had two weeks ago. I was doing some workshops at a, uh, a new school, an independent school here in Adelaide, and um, just really basic general rhythm music uh, workshops with these kids and I got them to sit in silence and to count you know just go like one two three four and then a bar rest one two three four one two three four and then I got them to close their eyes and do it and just closing their eyes made them listen and the sense, what well, the, the sensation of of the, I guess the the forward momentum that occurred in those bars rest was, it was it was amazing. Like even the teachers with their eyes closed when it was silence, I saw them sort of like move a little bit. Like oh wow, like they were propelled somehow. Mm. Um, just and and the time as well, just just totally solidified. And then I got them to like listen outside of the room as well. So this is a, this is meditation techniques mm. as well. And it got even deeper just from this really deep listening. And all they were doing was like they were clapping as well and hitting some percussion instruments, but then leaving this bar of silence or two bars of silence. And and they at the end of it, they were just like, that was awesome. And this is like year two, year three kids, mm. you know, like truly understanding the power of listening. And, so, and I was just saying to them that the most important part of music is the silence. Well, yeah, absolutely. And it's, it's fascinating, I find, with students, certainly with piano students, often there's a discomfort around the notion of rests. Mm. And rests can be, mean so many different things. They can oh, be yeah. so differently inflected. Like There's the rest that comes after an exclamation mark, the kind of shocked silence. Mm. There's the suspenseful rest after some sort of question in the musical fabric uh, there's the uncertain there are so many different mm. rests and those performers who actually master the art of rests silence charged silence too mm. because in a way what you were doing with that exercise was also teaching the kids about the power of collective listening mm. and that's I, what, a, what a concert hall is that it's ideal it's yeah. these people sort of focused and hearing the same thing and there's something really really powerful I, I mean I find when I'm when I'm up on stage there's an amplification of my own concentration and attentiveness and capacity to hear mm. not just what I'm doing, but my I guess my inner ear. It's somehow funneled by the the power of this sort of collective listening, this collective hearing, this this attentiveness. Absolutely, absolutely, and 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 in those sort of environments as well, in a concert hall, it, it sort of uh, you know it, it commands that attention. You know, you already you walk well, in and there's the space. Well, that's designed for Exactly, yeah. exactly. And, you know, even the banter before you play, it, it's muted banter. Mm, mm. And But then there's that beautiful moment where the lights can come down and the, the banter sort of subsides. And then yeah. there's that silence. That framing silence. Yeah. That has a different quality to any other silence. Absolutely. That silence of expectation. Absolutely. And mm. I, I love that. Like if, mm. I'm, if I'm about to walk onto the stage, I'll, I'll take a moment. Mm. I'll take a moment to sit there and, and listen to the to, to that energy. Capture it, a little bit of that silence in your butterfly net. And yep, absolutely. Mm -hmm. And then when you walk out, 
yeah, it just feels it feels wonderful, doesn't it? Mm. You know, but that's that that's the thing. Like it, everyone's everyone's listening, and and I mean, I guess when you are listening, it, it's there's a lot of expectation that's kind of involved in the actual process of listening oh, because sure. you're listening for something. Yeah, and um, in music as well, like those moments of silence as well are just the it's just the the most powerful and moving thing about music and as a, as a composer as well one of my favorite things to do is to build up this immense wall of sound to have it suck away for you know a beat and mm-hmm. then explode again so it's kind of like a depth charger mm-hmm. and and I've I've done it a number of times in compositions and every time oh, gee it feels good mm. um, and there's that that moment in between where where you know the orchestra pulls out and, and th- that it's silence but it's not obviously you've got the, the reverb from the, the space but there there is there is electricity there is something yeah. is flying around the room at that point yeah. and I think there's that split second of people just gasping like <gasps> and then release. Mm. It's you can't have that release without the, the silence. the Adelaide Symphony Orchestra um, playing a piece of mine called Into the Uncanny Valley and um, the conductor Hamish McKeish he he really understands my music and he absolutely milked that silence um, it was yeah, one of my one of my favorite moments in music that that tiny little glimpse of light in between one of your favorite silences that's right yeah, we should all have a collection of our favourite silences. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm actually constantly listening for moments of silence, you know, in, in, even in pop songs as well. I'm like, okay, where is it between that snare drum and that mm. hi-hat? Mm. Uh, yeah, it's fun. Just before I let you go, I should mention that um, the theme of this podcast, the theme music was supplied very kindly by Adam, our guest today. Mm. And, you know, of course, the, the podcast is called Perfect Cadence. And uh, the theme is also somewhat inspired by that notion. I wonder if you could just tell us how you you cooked this theme up. Yeah, well, it was, you know, it had to be perfect cadences. And, and, I mean, I listen to to podcasts as well. And I I know how important just just a a, a feeling is Mm. in in the theme music because the music can absolutely inform the like those those expectations it's the framing well. device as Absolutely. well as it's not the silence but it's a different type of exactly exactly and so so I, I gave it quite a I mean I was I was kind of thinking of it like being eyebrow lifting music where if you like you know it's just <laughs> sort of bright yeah and 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 it, it's kind of it moves in a way that that feels natural but not Yes. At the same time, so there's the expectation, and then there's a sort of subverting yeah. of expectation. Yeah, absolutely, yeah. and it's not it's not the conventional kind of movement, and yeah. So I I, I just thought I, I was I was thinking about you the whole time as well about mm-hmm. how you would kind of come out of that piece of music, 
right and and introduce the show so um yeah it was it was really fun actually because I was also really excited about doing it and being a part of this like I just thought this is cool this is neat <laughs> yeah no it's really really great having that ongoing contribution but it's also been an absolute delight to chat to you today Adam so well, thank, thank you, you so much for coming into the studio I'm sure we could have done a 24-hour impro conversation I know and and as you know your listeners probably have you know realized we didn't really talk much about the book itself but uh, you know I like talking about lots of different things. Well, I think it's also sort of interesting. It's I, I think actually our conversation was an extension of this notion that an artwork can produce another artwork, can mm. produce another artwork, can produce a conversation. And that's one thing that is wonderful about art. Absolutely. It's not an end point. It's a beginning point of a whole lot of thinking and mm. creating and, and doing. Absolutely. The book is The Museum of Modern Love by Tasmanian writer Heather Rose. It's self-inspired by Marina Abramovich's The Artist is Present... And it's a book that inspired our guest today, Adam Page, for his own 24-hour installation and I suspect might inspire a number of pieces and ideas and concepts to come. Thank you so much for being here today, Adam. It's been a great pleasure to have you. Thanks so much, Anna. It was a great chat. Perfect Cadence is brought to you by the John Kurt C Centre for Creative Practice at the University of Adelaide. Thanks to producer Stephen Love, production assistant Ben Nichols, and theme music composer Adam Page. I'm Anna Goldsworthy, and I hope you join us for our next instalment of Perfect Cadence. Mm-hmm.